Leonardo sometimes appears as a singular genius, and he is a singular genius, no doubt, but he based his thoughts and his inspirations also on the knowledge of his time. Reconstructing what, over the course of his life, he assembled in terms of a library, gives us really a unique insight into his intellectual world. Science Social, a podcast series about how science, history and society connect with and add to the big questions that we all have today. This show is created by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. My name is Stephanie Hood and in each episode I'm joined by guests from our institute to talk about their research, their big questions and some of the weird and wonderful experiences they've had along the way. I'm really pleased today to welcome Jürgen Wren to our podcast. Jürgen is director of the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science and of Department One, which focuses on structural changes in systems of knowledge. We're here to talk today about Leonardo da Vinci and his library, which is connected to the exhibition uh, Leonardo's Intellectual Cosmos, open at the Staatsbibliothek in Berlin in May and June 2021. We're very lucky to be able to still do this podcast despite the pandemic restrictions, but it does mean that we're doing the recording remotely and so you might notice some differences in the sound on this episode. So I wanted to start talking about the Codex Lester. So this is a codex that was written by Leonardo and it has quite an impressive recent history, doesn't it? Could you tell me more about that? Uh, it's a codex of 18 sheets, I should say, which have been folded to give 72 pages and it deals with subjects of natural philosophy, as it was then called. So quite interesting, but I might add quite expensive, if you should be interested in acquiring it. It's, I think, the most expensive manuscript that has ever been sold and ever been bought. Now, by whom do you guess it has been uh, bought? Bill Gates, of course. It's now the property of the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and it has been purchased for more than $30 million. And if the Institute would consider buying it, I'm not sure he's willing to sell it again, it would mean that we have to stop operation at the Institute for a couple of years just to acquire this codex of 18 sheets. I'm not sure we want to do this in the age of excellent digital reproductions. Could you actually tell us what makes it so valuable? Well, it's very rare that Leonardo manuscripts are being auctioned. And it's an extremely prestigious, extremely beautiful piece because it has these beautiful drawings. And it's related uh, to some of the key insights of Leonardo, the movement of water, uh, some astronomical drawings. It's just a fascinating piece. And we should say perhaps a word on the codices. Leonardo left us with... 4,000 plus manuscript sheets. And we are talking order of magnitude 22 codices that have come to us. And they differ incredibly. There were indeed some notebooks that Leonardo carried with him that he took on his travels and used for entering notes. And then there were huge sheets in which he developed thoughts, complex drawings, uh, sketches for books that he wanted to write. Now, many of these codices no longer exist as codices because they have been taken apart to present the, sh the single sheets separately. And this is justified because many of them were not bound codices for Leonardo himself. They were compiled as codices by later collectors. And their history is a very complex matter of research. Now, originally, he left it to his faithful and very careful disciple, Francesco Melzi, 
who took them back from France where Leonardo died and took them to a place near Milan where he preserved them as long as he lived. But when he died in 1562, his heirs were not so careful. And so the legacy of these manuscripts was distributed. And there are such stories that are still not clarified. You know, what's the origin? Some codices popped up in the middle of the 19th century, probably emerging from some illegal selling. So where did they come from? And, you know, uh, people are still investigating this. And you need to examine sheets that are distributed and bring them together again. And that's a very difficult thing because these are treasures that libraries don't give out so easily. And that's a challenge for Leon, current Leonardo research. So, you know, Leonardo is still a riddle. It's not the Da Vinci code, but uh, there are other riddles inscribed into Leonardo's manuscripts. These codices seem quite powerful for, for research because they give very important insights into Leonardo's life and uh, almost the only documents, as far as I know, that give us clues about his library, since all the books he, he owned have since been lost. Why would you say that the books that Leonardo owned are so important in Leonardo research, so in understanding him or his work or perhaps the wider social context in which he, he worked and lived? Uh, research into Leonardo's library has been going on for more than 100 years. But it's research that has seen some new recent results indeed, and these are mainly due to the work of the Italian Leonardo specialist Carlo Vecce, who has published a magnificent book on Leonardo's library where he summarized the findings of earlier historians, but also his own new careful analysis of all the traces that we find in Leonardo's manuscripts. And he again and again made notes in his manuscripts about books. And now the challenge of the interpretation is, did he want to purchase them? Did he want to borrow them? Did he have them? But all in all, you get the impression that Leonardo over the course of his life, compiled a real true library of order of magnitude 200 books or so. You know, there are a lot of ambiguities in reconstructing them. As you said, they have been lost as physical copies. But the point is that Leonardo sometimes appears as a singular genius, and he is a singular genius, no doubt, but he based his thoughts and his inspirations also on the knowledge of his time. Now, the library gives us a unique entry point into what he appropriated from this knowledge of his time. What interested him? Where did he learn? What did he learn? And so we can really get a completely new perspective into his intellectual development beyond what we can see from his manuscripts. So talking of ambiguities, the word spera written down by Leonardo in one of his codices refers to a book of which many different editions existed. And it's unclear, as I understand, which edition Leonardo owned, but research has condensed it down to two likely options. How would you say that the image of Leonardo changes which, with each Spera or Sfera edition? What would each of those tell us about him? There are ambiguities, as I said, from the philological reconstruction. Sometimes he just writes a single word, Sfera, Spera, in his spelling, and you then have to reconstruct what it could mean. So the sphera is a basic introduction into spherical astronomy and spherical geography. But then it was connected with a worldview, with the Christian worldview, with the Aristotelian cosmos, with issues of medicine. So we are talking really about a worldview that was packaged with the sphere. 
It was one of the best sellers of the late Middle Ages and early modern period. So with many editions and a great variation in these editions. So even if we just limit it to the book editions, we have to deal with about 42 printed editions that could have been available to him. And then you are quickly working at the interface between what was available and what could have interested him. Now, we have narrowed it down to two. One that has been already proposed in the literature, an older version of this, kind of a poetic version, but not so scientifically sophisticated. And then this was the period of a high level already of mathematical astronomy. Uh, people like Peuerbach or Regiomontanus, very sophisticated mathematical astronomers. And there was one edition that combined the original text of Sacrobosco with two treatises from these famous mathematical astronomers of the time, so contemporary treatises. So now look back at Leonardo. So either he was the artist that enjoyed a holistic worldview in which all things were connected with each other, or he was already trying to understand the clockwork of the universe, so to say, as mathematical astronomers were exploring it at the time. And the truth is, of course, we don't know, but the truth is also it's likely that Leonardo was interested in both. So he was interested in a holistic understanding, which he conceived always, not just as a matter of harmony, as it is sometimes said, but he always saw dynamics. And you realize through this example, but also through other examples, that he was really at a moment of transition between a medieval world and early modern world, between an idea of a dynamic, harmonic worldview and one in which the occupations that he all pursued in his life as an artist, as an engineer, as a scientist, were more and more going into specialized activities, no longer pursued by a single person. So he was really at this important and interesting intermediate moment in history. And one of the great things of the culture of this time, which Leonardo embodied so perfectly, was that people didn't shy away from the conflicts, from the tensions. In fact, it's an age of contestation with many competitions and dialogues and controversial positions, but people always tried to keep a balance. So balance doesn't mean harmony and stability and immobility. It means a dynamical interactions of contrasts with the attempt to maintain a balance. That's, I think, the essence of Renaissance culture, as I understand it. That's the essence also of what Leonardo tried. So even in this case, we have the specific mathematical astronomy on the one side, and we have this poetic, holistic astronomy, world picture astronomy on the other side. And I'm sure Leonardo was searching for a balance between these two options, as he was searching for balances in all, all kinds of places. That brings us nicely to how we can think of Leonardo's library almost in two directions. We can learn something about Leonardo himself, and we can also learn something about the world and the time period that he lived in. And of course, the Renaissance was a time of huge upheaval. What, as a Leonardo scholar, would you say was the most significant change, and especially for Leonardo and for his intellectual cosmos? Well, it was, of course, a culture you know, that is, was confined to certain parts of Europe. We consider now the Renaissance as a world historical event, but geographically it was, of course, limited. And it had particular social cultural roots, in particular the flourishing cities of the time. And it was a time of an incredible openness, of an incredible orientation versus the life here and now, in contrast to earlier periods where the 
gaze was more directed towards the transcendental. And it paid attention also to the past. Therefore, it's called the Renaissance, of course. It paid attention to antiquity as a model. Now, sometimes it's described as if people in the Renaissance wanted just to become exactly like their models in antiquity. But they know that their imitation, quote unquote, of antiquity was a play, was just that, an imitation. So they, they had a way of opening a dialogue with the past in which they could sharpen their own identity and their own thinking. So another big change during the Renaissance was printing, what some call the print revolution. Would you say that that had a big impact on Leonardo's library? Yeah, what I found particularly remarkable, and it wasn't clear to me before we entered this enterprise of the exhibition, uh, we realized you know, how rich the interaction between Leonardo and the intellectual world of his time was. It's well known that he was a man of an incredible range of interest and a great curiosity. But that curiosity was really fed by the access to an intellectual world that became accessible through the printing possibilities, through the printing technology that enabled the book culture of his time. So he now emerges as much more than a, a learned man than it had traditionally appeared, where you know he's typically seen as a self-made artist. But that Leonardo collected this library was a pretty unique feat, also in his time where libraries were owned by institutions or by luminaries, a bishop or a duke or something. But that a private person, an artist, depending on you know on the commissions that he could get so systematically pursued not just individualistic interests, but he tried to systematize these interests. He himself tried to become an author. He wanted to write books. He didn't he wasn't very successful because he had so many ideas and he he hardly ever completed his things. It was a bit like in his art because he had a very experimental, explorative mind. But he still he came very close to finishing a treatise on painting that was posthumously published, or a book on the water, of which we have many traces, particularly also in the Codex Lester, by the way. But it's all knowledge, of course, of his time. How could it be otherwise? But the way he brought it together was due to two things. It was due to his personality, to his curiosity, but it was also due to the possibility of reading things in books that now were cheap and easily available. I wonder then how you might see also based on what you've just told me about Leonardo, in what way our contemporary view of Leonardo might be distorted? So how do we see him today? And, and what even might this then say about us? So Leonardo's image in later retrospect, of course, changes with the perspectives, with the concerns that people have in different epochs. And for a long time, he was seen simply as the heroes of, of modernity, as the one who prefigured engineers that were later taking up the challenge of aviation and the first constructor of submarines and all of that. So there we take definitely a different position. Leonardo, he wasn't looking for a specialized mathematical science that then became the basis for engineering applications. He was looking for unity of science and engineering, science and practice, a science that was not isolating mathematical laws from the reality of matter. For him, this was part of a whole. He didn't try to separate that. Or the other example that is really striking, I think, is seeing. So seeing, we treat with different disciplines. One is optics, it's a physical discipline. 
And one is physiology. That's part of biology, of medicine, of understanding the human bodies. And what Leonardo tried to find is a unity between you know, the optical mechanism of seeing and the physiology of seeing. And I think for today's science, which has to deal with complex systems, earth science, which has physical processes like the atmosphere or the lithosphere or the, the hydrosphere, and biological processes in the biosphere, and of course we humans as part of an anthroposphere or technosphere, all these things belong together in reality. And so it's good to remember a figure that tried to see the unity of the world rather than separating it according to disciplinary boundaries, which simply didn't exist at his time. And also bridging the look at the nature and the human dimension of it. For Leonardo, this was a unity, and it was a complex unity, not a simple unity. It was a challenge for him to understand that. The relation between the details and the general principles, he struggled with that. And I think seeing this struggle and seeing the openness of possibilities of development, that's very important. And then on a more trivial level, he was in the middle of a media revolution because printing was still new and only gradually the new technology, the new medium gave rise to an intellectual world in its own right. And I think we are still within such a media transition, media revolution with the electronic media. And it's very interesting to observe in the case of Leonardo, how this works, not just in a technological sense, but how it operates in a cultural sense. So taking up a word by Barbara Tuckschmidt, we are looking into a distant mirror when we look at Leonardo. So you've been in the media quite recently talking about public trust in science and on the unity of language and of communication. And that made me wonder if at all, if your research into Leonardo might actually have informed your own feeling about this topic. Would you say it has? Yeah, there is actually a link, I think. And the link is that, you know, in our days and for a long time, science has been operating in a sphere of its own, separate from public understanding. Many disciplines since the 18th, 19th century have developed their own very specialized terminology. There is a methodology that you have to study in a disciplinary training, but that's not generally transparent in the public understanding of science. So today we have to do a lot in order to bring those spheres closer together because we depend ever more on science. Science is important for issues like you know, the pandemia or climate change. So people have to understand how complex the system is and have to reintegrate it into the general culture. Now, that's also something that we see in Leonardo's time. Science in many aspects of society gained significance and people were at the same time trying to bring it into their culture. And certainly Leonardo did. He was at the forefront of trying to make sense of it all. And so we can, I think, learn from him how to do this. And one lesson that I would draw immediately is what I said earlier, namely that this will never give rise to a harmonious, stable world picture. That was already clear to Leonardo, but this can only be captured by a dynamical understanding, an understanding that is as dynamic as the world itself. So his you know, comprehensive and dynamical approach and also his way of bridging art and science that we should not overlook talking about Leonardo. So for him, art was science and philosophy. It was the central medium for him for expressing the understanding of the world. And I think that's something from which we should learn. We can learn from him. 
in the search and in the openness for this unity of culture and science. Talking of the connections between art and science, I know that this exhibition has been quite a long time in the making and a lot of effort and thought has gone into the research and content of the exhibition, but also into the design. In fact, the design was a prominent part of the planning of the exhibition, wasn't it? Would you say that the artistic design of the exhibition is connected to Leonardo and to the almost the connections and unity between art and science that we see reflected in the exhibition itself? It was a dialogue between the historical investigation and the scenography. This was all done in a brainstorming discussion that involved the historians and that involved the artist and scenographer Serge von Arx, who is somebody who is uh, very open to these intellectual issues. And he tried to find a language that would express the dialogue between Leonardo's manuscripts floating in the intellectual air, so to say, and the books that kind of portion knowledge in more definite units. Leonardo's struggle with these two worlds, which is evident from his own attempts to write books, which then basically failed, to materialize this tension, that could only be done in the dialogue between an artist like Serge von Arx and the community of historians that has been working on the exhibition. Would you say, I mean, is there, some, is there a particular favorite object that you have? It's the central exhibition of this sculpture where you see the manuscripts floating in the air. And it's an acoustic sculpture where you hear quotations of Leonardo. And in the background, you see the Tower of Codices. So this idea of reconstructing Leonardo's library has been sort of tried before, but all of these versions have been different. What would you say is actually really specific or that really differs with regards to this Berlin version of Leonardo's library that you're now exhibiting? Yeah, you know, it's of course another thing if you reconstruct a library in physical terms by collecting contemporary volumes. It's a different thing from writing a book on Leonardo's library because you have to rely on what you can actually put in the exhibition and what is available in local libraries. But it's also a process of rethinking again when you are confronted with a physical material. So I think it's more than just translating the results of a scholarly book into an exhibition for purposes of popularization. It's a research project in its own right. So on the topic of Leonardo, I also wanted to talk more about your own path in the history of science, because I know that you started in physics and you moved into the history of science. And, and throughout your career, you've looked at Leonardo, you've looked at Einstein, you've also covered the Anthropocene. The history of science itself is very interdisciplinary. And I, I wonder what you might have to say about this, about your own path and why you choose to explore these different topics and, and make these different connections. Well, in hindsight, it's, of course, always tempting to rationalize what one does in one's life. And Leonardo, of course, is, I think, fascinating to most people by the sheer beauty and charm of his work. And it's, it's sort of immediately attractive across all the ages, across half a millennium. In my particular case, the interest in figures like Leonardo or also Galileo comes very much from my relation to Italy and to Tuscany and Florence in particular. You know, the exhibition is also the fruit of a long-standing friendship with Paolo Galuzzi, the director of the Museo Galileo in Florence. You know, I've always admired his work, the fascinating things he's doing in his museum in Florence. And he is a great Leonardo and Galileo scholar. So 
entertaining this very close friendship and intellectual companionship has been always a motivation for me also in pursuing these things. And without Paolo Galuzzi generously offering to adapt the Florentine exhibition to make a Berlin Leonardo library out of it, this project would not have come into being. I mean, I really hope many people can see the exhibition because the pandemic really acts as a harsh constraint on the accessibility. And this is all about the accessibility of knowledge and I hope the pandemia doesn't stand in its way. Yeah, same. So I know that there's also a virtual exhibition that runs in parallel to the exhibition at the Staatsbibliothek, the Stabi. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, the Institute has been, since its foundation, engaged in what is today called digital humanities. But again, it was a joint passion of Paolo Galuzzi in Florence and us here in Berlin to make cultural heritage accessible online and freely accessible online. And the exhibition follows that tradition of a virtual exhibition, or as we called it in the case of Einstein, Engineer of the Universe, an exhibition without walls. In this particular case, it's you know the result of great design work here done at the Institute, but also building on what has been done in Florence and in Vinci, where people have created a wonderful electronic resource called ILEO, which makes all of Leonardo's manuscripts available online with transcriptions, with annotations. It has dramatically changed the conditions for Leonardo research, and we have tried to embed this in our virtual exhibition. Thank you so much, Jürgen, for your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. Oh, thank you. For those of you who are interested in going to the exhibition, you'll find more information on our website, particularly relating to the restrictions uh, related to the pandemic. The exhibition is on now from May 11th until June 28th, 2021 at the Staatsbibliothek in Berlin. You'll also be able to find the virtual exhibition on our website. This is it for today. If you like what you just heard, we'd love your support. Click the subscribe button, recommend us to your friends and colleagues, or give us a thumbs up in your favourite podcast app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. Science Social is produced by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. Music by Poddington Bear, and I'm the host, Stephanie Hood. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at, at MPIWG. And most of all, thanks for listening. <laughs>